Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Judges chapter 6, if you don't know where Judges is, it's uh, the seventh book of the Old Testament. And while you are turning there, I'd love just to quote from the 38th book of the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah chapter 4 has a a verse that is well known to to Christian folk. If you might have seen it on a coffee cup, you might have seen it at the back of your grandmother's toilet door. I don't know why they put them there, but the verse in chapter 4, verse 6 says this, says, it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The great thing about that verse is that it's not just on its own isolation, it leads on into verse 7, which says this, who are you, O great mountain? Just, if you take that one off the screen, we're not reading from there yet, Andreas. Andreas, keep attention. One back. There we go. Blank screen. Attention. Who are you, O great mountain? You shall become a plain a molehill before our God. The scripture says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, O Lord. Who are you, O great mountain? You shall become a plain, a molehill before our God. I don't know about you, but that verse stirs faith in my heart uh, to respond to what God is doing. We're in the middle of a series called Move the Mountains. And for us, it's not just a catchphrase. It's not just something that looks good on on a bracelet on our arm. We are believing this year would be a year of faith for us. A year where the mountains that have stood opposed for us for maybe months or years or even decades would come tumbling down. There would not just be a hyped up moment, but actually the addictions, the, the, the prayers that you've been praying, the family members that have seemed too far gone, the dreams that have lied dormant would actually say, these are the moments we're going to lay hold of them by faith. And we're going to say with faith, who are you, O great mountain? Who are you, O great mountain? You shall become a plain, a molehill before our God. And we're wanting to put this shout, this cry in us as a people. And I pray that you and I would pick it up this evening in this series. But this evening, I am wanting us to look at one scripture together. But the whole point for this, the whole narrative for us tonight is, is what happens though on a Monday morning, on a Tuesday afternoon, a Wednesday night, at work, at the doctors, at school, at play, wherever you find yourself, what happens when the mountains start shouting back at you? It's, let me, maybe it's a little bit poetic for you, but on, on a Sunday at church, when the band are playing, it's easy to sing mover of mountains. But on Monday, when the reality hits and your boss starts to speak, when the bank account is still empty, we've got to have a faith that's able to withstand when the mountain says, who are you? So this evening, I want to help equip us a little bit, if that's all right. So why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to read from Judges chapter 6. This is Andres. Our time to shine. We stand because we believe the Word of God has got a high authority in our lives. Not my opinions, not our thoughts, not our, our understandings, but actually His words. So let's read it together. This is Judges 6 from the NLT. It says, The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, Marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped 
bear. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. One back, we raced ahead. But you have not listened to me. Then the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oprah. Let's pronounce it Ophrah, just in case people get confused who was there. Then the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiza. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, other translations say, Man of valor, mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say, The Lord brought us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites? Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you are fighting against one man. Let's pray before we sit. Father, this evening we come with faith in our hearts to hear from you. I thank you, Father God, as we, as we lean into your word right now, would you put courage where there's courage has been lacking. I pray, Father God, that it's not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, that we'll be able to say, who are you, O great mountain? You shall become a plain, a molehill before our God. Pray you do this in Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen. Why don't you take your seats? It's good to be in church this evening. As I mentioned, I'm uh, a dad of a, a little girl. And uh, it's been 11 months, just ticked over 11 months, and uh, I, I, I hate to do this, but I just want to let you know that I've got pretty good at this parenting thing. Some of you struggle, it comes pretty naturally to Fiona and I, we're really good at this thing, you know, in the sense of we don't get that stress now, you know, bedtime, we, we actually don't, it's, Fiona, you do it if you can, if I'm, if I'm free, I'll do the bedtime routine, you do the bottle, no, I'll do the bottle, it's like, it's very relaxed, no, no, no I'll take her for a walk, you know, you take her for a walk, it's just so easy for us. Yeah, no, let's hold your comments. Let's hold your comments for later. Thank you very much. I'll be signing copies of my parenting book afterwards if you want to make your opinion there. Just joking. But there's one thing that still gets us flummoxed. It's the moment where we're sitting in the, in the lounge and a, a gentle breeze blows through the house and my nostrils prick up. And I smell something is amiss. And, uh, and I say, Fee, has a demon just entered our home? And she says, no, it's Olivia. And it's that moment where you start to panic when you go, how long has that demonic smell been residing in that nappy? Because the fear is if it's just come, it's going to be easy to deal with. But if it's been there for a while and we haven't smelt it, she's been crawling around for a while. And that could be a whole lot of mess going on down there. And Fiona knows that my nose is linked to my stomach. So as soon as I get that whiff, it's the dry heaving starts. Fiona, Fiona. And we know it's time for code red, otherwise known as code brown in our home. And uh, we run and we just at these moments where the panic sets in and actually we have to, because of the, the, the fear and the chaos that's going on, we have to go to a system that we know. 
In this moment, it's like no longer laissez-faire, you take it, no, we take it. We're both on. I'm like, Fiona, we're on. And I pick up the baby and I run it upstairs, holding her as far away as I can from myself as possible. I love her, telling her, I love you. I love you, but you stay far at the moment. And we get upstairs and we put it down. And I'm trying to keep the, keep the what's in my stomach down and keep what's in the nappies clean. And, uh, and Fiona goes, we just get into the system. And Fiona says, Gabe, legs. And I have to pick up those little legs, you know, as if she's like a little dingo, you know. Got a, look, look at the size of the legs on this little fella. You know, I've been croc hunt, crocodile hunter. Anyway. Um, and holding her little legs, and Fiona says, not only her, her legs, she says, take her hands, because little Olivia's hands, as the nappy gets home, and I love to go feeling down what's in the nappy, you know? So I've got to be on hands and legs, and, and look, keeping my stomach under control. Keep your eyes up. Go to your happy place, Gabe. Go to your happy place. And, uh, and as I'm doing that, Fiona's on, on this duty downstairs, and she undoes the nappy, and, and then it's, it's all chaos. All, all chaos breaks out, and we just start whipping out the wet wipes. We are not afraid to go through five, six, seven, eight wet wipes at a time. I tell you, this drought is nothing. You can have my water, but you can never take my wet wipes. So we go through the wet wipes, and as we're going through the wet wipes, there comes this big moment, the transition moment. You know the transition moment? The dirty nappy comes out, and you've got to get, somehow get a clean nappy before Olivia realizes that the nappy's off and it's time to party because something else might be following up the first demon. You know what I mean? So we've got to move fast. You know? so, so Fee's like, hold the legs, the hands. I'm doing that well, you know, doing that well, playing my role well. And Fee runs and gets the other nappy, and we have to do the transition moment. And when that's done, and eventually we finally close that nappy and breathe a sigh of relief. The job's not over yet because it's like the time for the, 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 the hazmat suits and the bomb disposal unit. You know that moment where you get that dirty nappy, you put it in a plastic bag, and you walk down the stairs very carefully, very carefully. And that, that thing does not stay inside. Doesn't, that's not time for the inside bin. That's the outside bin. Take it out. That thing will not reside in our home one second longer. We'll cast it out in Jesus' name. When moments like that happen, we go to our formula. We don't, we don't mess around. We don't mess around with uh, actually how we're feeling or our emotional state at the moment. It's like we, uh, you assume position. You drop plates. You drop what you're doing. It's, t- it's game on. Code brown resounds. And we know legs, hands, nappy, transition, bomb disposal, done. We know where to go. And I want to tell you, with that silly story aside, this evening I want to help us understand that when our mountains start shouting back, that on a Monday, on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, when, when the world gets big and actually your circumstance seems larger than it did on the weekend when you're singing Mover of Mountains, we cannot go just to uh, rely on our emotional state. We have to have a plan, a playbook, a game plan of where we need to go when that moment hits. So this evening from this text, I want to help us with an understanding of how to have faith in the face of our mountain. When your mountain seems large, where do you go? So I want to help us in this moment from this text. There's three points this evening. And uh, the first one out of this text, of Judges chapter 6, is number one. The first thing we need to learn to do is find his voice. Can you say that to someone next to you? Say, number one, find his voice. Very nice. You can mutter it to somebody. Well done. That's very nice. Like a rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. Well done. Find his voice. Let me help you us understand the context of this, this, this scripture. The background, the narrative, is the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east. No relation to Dali Tumbo and the people of the south. Just clear that up for any fan. Thank you for the SABC too. Uh, anyway, they came and they were laying waste to, to the Israelite nation. The Bible describes them as cruel. It says they encamped against them. This tells us that they devoured everything they had and they left nothing. This was a cruel people. So much so, the scripture that we've just read says, every time they'd, they'd come so much against the Israelite nation, the Israelite nation were now in hiding in the mountains, 
in the hills for their lives. They were hiding in fear of the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east. They were so cruel that actually when they planted crops, as soon as they planted the crops, the Midianites would come as if they were locusts, just swarm in and devour all their crops, uproot their crops, take their animals away. This is how cruel they were. So if you want to know who is the mountain for the Israelite nation, it's the Midianites. This mountain that is shouting, that is yelling at them, and there's so much they've responded by hiding in caves. And that's where we find our man Gideon, Gids for short. In this moment here, where we find him, the scripture tells us that Gideon was doing three things, that he was threshing wheat in a wine press, basically a hole in the ground, because he was fearful of the Midianites, he was hiding his grain from them. Now, I want us to understand in this moment very quickly, if you have not been threshing wheat lately, which um, I haven't for a while, I just gave up that habit for Lent, um, but threshing wheat, let me tell you, I've learned that threshing wheat, the best place to do threshing wheat is not in a hole in the ground. It's actually, conversely, the worst place to be doing it. To thresh wheat, you need to be above ground, preferably at an altitude, so that the wind can blow through. So when you've threshed it, you can throw it up in the air and the wind can blow away the chaff and you can be left with, what, with that which is good. So be do, doing it in a wine press is the height of, the kindest way I can say this, stupidity. But we have to understand what's happening here is actually we know as much as I'm trying to under, help us unlock that we need a game plan, a playbook of where to run when the mountain starts to yell. The enemy has a playbook for our lives too. And he's not very creative. He used the same system again and again and again, all the way through scripture, all the way into our lives. He goes to three, the same three-point strategy. Let me help you understand and work it through. You see this man Gideon the mountain spoke. The enemy speaks. Number one, the enemy speaks his voice and he declares untruth about who we are and who God is and puts us in a place of fear. Gideon was, was so scared that he was actually hiding his grain away from the Midianites. But what happens in the response to that is that we sink to the level of our circumstances. Literally, he sunk into a hole in the ground. And then thirdly, we start doing dumb things. If you want to trace your sin, just follow that pattern. That's how God, that's how the enemy works. The enemy speaks, we believe it, and we sink to the level of circumstance, and then we start doing dumb things. It starts on page one or two of the Bible with Eve, the first time that God has spoken, and, and Eve is, and Adam and Eve are in a great place. The enemy comes and says, did God really say? The enemy speaks. Eve's attention is distracted. She starts looking around at the other trees and realizing there's other trees, actually. Well, maybe we should, we can eat from that one. She she, she lows, sinks to the level of circumstance. Finally, she does dumb things and takes the fruit. It's the pattern, if you follow it throughout Scripture, of the narratives of people and, and the enemy and the interaction with them throughout Scripture, apply it to your own lives. That's how the enemy works. And I want to ask us this question. What do we do? Let's bring it into our everyday reality here. What do you do when you drop your kid off at school on a Monday morning? And the teacher meets you in the car park and says, could we, sorry, before you when you get, pick up your kid, could we just have 15 minutes? I'd love to talk to you about your child's academics or behavior. And I leave you with that. What do you do as a parent? Where do you run? Your heart starts to play games with you. Oh, what's up now? Has he fallen behind? What's happening? What do you do when you send out all your CVs to multiple people and you spend the weekend placing send, receive, send, receive, send, receive, but by Monday morning, nothing has still come back. That mountain gets louder and starts shouting out your name. And declaring, I don't think any of them are coming back. 
What do you do then? What do you do when the anger that has cost you so many relationships gets sparked by something at work? What do you do when you get a bad diagnosis from the doctor and your fear and anxiety start to sink their claws into your emotions? What do you do when the same temptation comes knocking at your door? Do you sink to the level of your circumstances or do you rise to the level of his voice? What do you do? Do you sink to the level of your circumstances or do you rise to the level of his voice? You see, in this story, in this narrative that we just read this evening, is that the mountain is yelling and dictating Gideon's response. The mountain is yelling and Gideon's response is he's heard the voice, he's sunk to the level of circumstance, and now he's doing dumb things, threshing wheat in a hole. And it's at this place that God meets him. And we read this, and this is the words that the, the Lord speaks over Gideon. He says, mighty hero, hero, mighty hero, man of valor, mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm picturing Gideon going, I think you got the wrong hole. Next, just, just a little further, left and down. I think that guy's definitely not me. It's like, I'm reading, I'm like, you got this one wrong, God. You got the wrong guy. This is, this is Moronsville. This is, this is, I don't know what language you want to use, but when I read it, I'm going, threshing wheat in a hole. I don't think he's the prime candidate for, the, for God to come and use this guy. Maybe I'm just the only guy who reads the scriptures honestly. But anyway. But this is the thing, God's voice comes and meets Gideon in this place, and God's voice resounds over him, and Gideon has an opportunity, am I going to continue to listen to the enemy's voice, or am I going to hear the voice of the Lord? But I want to help us this evening, how, how do you and I recognize the voice of the Lord? Maybe you've had that question, is that my voice, his voice, the enemy's voice? How do I know? Well, here's three things that you might want to write down or jot down on a piece of paper on your phone. But if you want to recognize his voice, I've narrowed down to three understandings. Number one, his voice is convicting and never condemning. It's convicting, but never condemning. That means he will call you out on your sin, but he won't crush you. It's convicting, but not condemning. Secondly, it reminds you, his voice reminds you of your future and not your past. You see, in this illustration, the enemy, the, Jesus, the, the Lord comes to Gideon and says, mighty man of valor, that word, had that word of God had no relation to his past because he was not a mighty man of valor. But Jesus does not name us by our sin or by where we've come from. He names us by where we're going and our future. The word, of the, the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord reminds us of our future, not our past. Thirdly, the voice of the Lord speaks of his faithfulness and not your ability. When the voice of the Lord comes, the voice of legalism, the voice of the enemy will say, try harder, whip yourself more. Find the inner strength. The voice of the Lord says, trust me. So I want to ask us the question, what is defining you, sir, ma'am? Is it the enemy? Is it your circumstances? Is it your sin? Or hopefully, I want to ask you, is it his word, his voice? We, we cannot do a series on faith and not push people to the word of God. Because the Word of God tells us this, faith comes, you want to know how you get faith? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of God. Faith doesn't come by being whooped into a fervor and being told, you can do it. That won't last you till Monday morning. That won't last you when the pressure's on on a Wednesday. That won't last you when the mountain is going, who do you think you are? The Word of God is what we need to find. We need to find His voice. I'll say it this way, if the Word is not shaping you, the world will be shaking you. 
That's worth saying it a second time. If the word is not shaping you, the world will be shaking you. There's no neutral ground here. This is the battle royale that we have to understand. The enemy has a tactics, and we have to apply tactics to find his voice. I really believe that our futures are not determined by the hands of men or our circumstances, but by the voice of the Lord. He's speaking. Are we listening? There's a man named Peter in the Bible who's almost like the, 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 same, the New Testament version of Gideon. And there's this moment where Jesus comes in, and he's a, he's a fisherman, he's on a boat, and Jesus comes walking on the water and says, Peter, step out the boat and walk on water towards me. And Peter goes, me? All right. Peter steps out and starts going, I've got the power. Oh, wait till the guys see this on Instagram. Whoa. And he starts walking on water. And as he's walking towards Jesus, though, there's this moment comes, the wind and the waves start to rise up. And, the, and the, I can imagine the wind is pumping. The waves are getting bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, Peter, the enemy starts to speak. The mountains start to speak. Who are you that you'll be walking on water? Fishermen stay in boats. They don't go and walk amongst the trout. What are you doing? And all of a sudden, the Bible tells us, the pattern again, the enemy speaks. And Peter literally starts to sink to the level of his circumstance. He sees the wind and the waves. He allows that voice to have, uh, uh, have volume in his life, and he starts to sink. But I love Peter's response. He lands where he, instead of leading him to do dumb things, he turns and says, Jesus, save me. Because Peter learned when the mountains start to shout, you have to find his voice. Find his voice. Find his voice amongst the noise. Find his voice. Can we be a people? He is speaking. Are we listening? Number one in this thing, we need to find something. That's his voice. Find his voice. Number two this evening is we need to lose the excuse. We need to find something. We need to lose something. We need to keep something. Firstly, find his voice. Number second, number two, lose the excuse. Now we're going to do it together. One, two, three. Tell the other neighbor. Lose the excuse. Come on. Sunday night. I love it. You see this, 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 this narrative. The story goes on and tells us that Gideon finds the voice of the Lord. Or, or more honestly, and according to the text, the voice of the Lord finds him. The voice of the Lord finds him and starts to call him out, literally. But this is the understanding. I love the fact that God comes and meets with Gideon and starts calling his name. Gideon, mighty warrior. The Lord is standing in front of him. Not a hologram. Not a text. This isn't an email that he's opened up from the Lord. This isn't a prophetic word from somebody else down the road who's via, via, via. This is the Lord, God, standing in front of him and says, Gideon, mighty warrior. And I'm telling you, I'm just maybe I just myself. I, if I see that, I'm going. I'm sorry about the threshing of wheat. That's stupid. And I'm like, I'm down. I'm like, out. Whatever you tell me, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. The Lord is here. But if, as we read on the, the very next line, and for the rest of the passage we read, just what starts to happen? Excuses just drip out of Gideon's mouth. They come so quickly as if they had been rehearsed. And I'll say that actually I believe that they had been inside his mouth and he had spoken these things for years. These things that came so easy. It was almost like his Twitter bio. This is who I am. I'm the failure. Flo flowed out of him. You see what happens here. It's not just for Gideon. It wasn't just the mountain without. It was actually the mountain within. That was his biggest vice. His biggest enemy. Actually, so often God says, I'm the mover of mountains, but actually I want to deal with your heart first because that's a bigger obstacle for my kingdom of God. And in this moment, as Gideon starts to pour forth excuses, you see that Gideon had become so obsessed with excuses that I believe he had actually become an excuse. He had become what he, what he believed. And, and so much so, but I, I want to help us understand that we, 
we believe here that breakthrough begins when excuses end. Breakthrough begins when excuses end. You see, Gideon says it this way. He says, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh. And I'm the least in my entire family. Maybe some of us could have penned those words, but we would have said it this way. I'm emotionally closed. I'm a habitual liar. Bad luck just follows me. I'm sick all the time. It's just me. You know, I just get sick all the time. Everyone does it. Come on. Table view is divorce capital of the world. Milneton is a church graveyard. I don't know about you, but I'm a, I'm a fan of, of the Instagram. It takes less work than Facebook. But um, I went, my family and I, we went on a holiday to Mauritius in December. How do you know I went on a holiday? Because I'll tell you a million times. Because I don't think it's going to happen for another 20 years or so. But what you do when you go on holiday to Mauritius, obviously, lots of Instagram pictures to make people feel jealous back home. Obviously. Sorry, just too, too much? Too real? But what we did, I don't know if, you, if you're not following me yet. This is not a pun for my account, but feel free. But, uh, but I remember there was a moment where we had this incredible view of this beach. White sand, perfect palm trees. Blue, blue ocean. I was just like, this, this is going to be good on Instagram later. This is going to be good. So I remember kneeling down and you just wait for the stray dog to walk past. Yeah, yeah. Out the picture, Fido. Get out of there. And then you get it there and you crop it perfectly and you, you take one. You're, ah, oh, my thumbprint was on it. But never mind. Take another. You take another and the, the light was bad. Someone else was, uh, walked in the frame. So you take about 10, 10 to 15 to 20 photos. And later that night, you sit there and you just flick through until you find the one that you're going to post. You know the one, ah, that won't do. No, that won't do. Ah, this one. And then you put some nice emotional quote there at the bottom that has no relation to the picture, but it makes you seem deep, you know? You know some of you, I'm calling some of you out in Jesus' name. But anyway. But, you know, here's the thing. And people, and you know, you post that picture and you sit back and you just wait for the likes to start rolling in. Like, oh, and they just start coming. Oh, they love this picture. But here's the truth. If you had been with me, and you had just turned this way, down the other, other beach, the public beach. That was the private beach that we weren't even staying at. The public beach. You would have seen a photo, if I had taken that one, of a lot of obese, sunburnt Englishmen. And that picture wouldn't have been got as many likes as the other one I had taken. Now, here's my illustration in this moment. Is that both realities were true. I just had the authority to choose what I allowed in my frame. Revelation is blowing in people's minds right now. Here's the thing. It doesn't mean it's not there. It just means I'm not allowing it in my frame. Let me tell you, life changes church. You have more authority than you know. You have more authority than you know. And I want to ask us the question tonight. What is in your frame that shouldn't be? What is in your frame that shouldn't be there? Here's the example that I've used all day today. Is that when we planted Milnerton Congregation just over two years ago, just under two years ago now. And uh, as we got faith to go, Milnerton wasn't the spot to go for us. I'll be honest. It wasn't the greatest spot. We were like, we were like somewhere else, something more cool. Milnerton just seemed Milnerton, if I'm honest. But God spoke. And God convinced us in our hearts that we believe that that's where we needed to plant a church. So faith rose in our hearts. And as I started to, to investigate Milnerton, the word that often came back to people, to, to my, to, from, from people was, ah, Milnerton's a church graveyard though. I was like, really? Tell me more. 
And actually, as we investigated the use of the school hall there, they, the, the words that came back to us was, ah, that's cool. Four churches have used this hall in the last five years, and three of them don't exist anymore. And Milton, they're like, the guys, we said, okay, cool. Can we have a contract? They're like, God, oh, you don't need a contract. How long are you going to be in here for anyway? Not going to be here for long. And all of a sudden, I'm like, really? Wow, Milton, yay. The voice of the enemy. The mountains start to shout. And they actually said to us, you know, why don't you just use the foyer of the hall? You know, you, why even you go to the trouble of seeing chairs up in the main hall? Just use the foyer because it's smaller. It's probably how big you guys will grow. And, and Milton's a graveyard. Milton's a graveyard. But here's the thing. The voice of the enemy was speaking, but we had to find the voice of the Lord. But he told us. He told us to come here. But then we also, we had to lose our excuse in that moment. And actually what we had to do, what we have to do again and again is going, yes, maybe that may be true, but our God has spoken and we've got authority. Yes, other three churches might have closed in the same venue in the last four years. But guess what? I can zoom in and I can go past it. That doesn't have to be in my frame. I can frame, but God has spoken. I get to choose what I allow in my frame. Let me look eyeball you this evening. You have more authority than you know. What do you allow in your frame? It's time to lose the excuse. Life changes evening. It's time to fix our focus. This evening, number one, find his voice. Number two, lose the excuse. Thirdly and finally this evening, to keep his presence. To find something, we've got to lose something. We've got to keep something. Thirdly, we've got to keep his presence. You see, in response to Gideon's babble and excuses that just came dripping off his tongue. Ah, but, 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 no, no, not me. Ah, what do you, wrong, wrong hole. Ah. God's answer was not some pop psychological um, Twitter status. It wasn't something saying, hey, Gideon, you know what? That's okay. You're actually a very nice guy. Come, let's just, I want to talk this through with you. No, it wasn't to say, I'm going to sign you up for a, a, a self-esteem course. No, no, God doesn't. Try and pep him up with some sort of cheap answer. God's answer to Gideon's excuse is this. Gideon, shh, my boy, I will be with you. That statement should blow our mind. That God's statement to Gideon was not Gideon, you know what, you are good, you can do it. No, no, it was, I'll be with you. Here's the great truth. that The secret of the gospel is not that you are great. Because if that was true, I could spend an hour going, come on, believe it, you are great, believe it, you are great, believe it, you are great. You'd leave going, yay! Monday would kick the heck out of you in seconds and you go, I'm not that great. Your bank balance would push that out of you in seconds. Your relational stress would push that out in seconds. Actually, the secret of the gospel is not that you're great, but that he is with you. He is with you. And we've got to understand that. So this evening I want to help us know that there's two implications of keeping his presence. Number one, two good things possibly to write down again or memorize, is number one, we need to be aware. Be aware of his presence. Be aware. The Bible, the scriptures tell it this way. It talks, it describes about God's presence as his omnipresence. His omnipresence. The scriptures tell us that David in the Psalms writes and says, where can I go to escape your presence? He said, if I go to the heights, you are there. If I go to the depths, you are there. This was David's rhetorical speech saying, God, you're everywhere. Jesus goes on and he says this in this way. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I want to tell you whether you're on a mountaintop or in hiding in a wine press, he says, I will never leave you. Whether you're in joy or in depression, in plenty or in lack, in holiness or in sin, he will never leave you. 
Let me tell you this. This probably should terrify you this evening. That when you are in sin, you close your door to indulge with your sinful nature. He does not say, I'll wait outside until you're done. God is with you. That terrifies me and fills me with courage at the same time. But God is with us. He ends the, the, the Matthew 28 with saying, I will be with you even to the very end. Sir, ma'am, it's not the very end. Yes, he's still with us. We have to be aware that right now in this place, not because there's a keyboard playing, not because we have got great worship or a great sermon or, or we've set the environment just right. No, no, no. God is here. God is here right now. Are you aware of the fact that God is here? We need, number one, be aware, but we cannot just stop there. Secondly, we have to, we have to the scriptures tell us, we have to draw near. We have to draw near. Be aware and draw near. See, too many Christians will stop with being aware. Yeah, yeah, God, God, yeah, God's with me, that's cool. The Bible tells us, we explain that there's the omnipresence of God, but there's also his manifest presence. Moments where he makes himself very close to you and I, and we become aware of his presence around us. James 3 tells us, says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I don't know how I can say that more strongly. God's speaking to you and I right now. He says this, this invitation. He says, draw near to me and I will underline that several times. I will draw near to you. God, not some pen pal, not a wife, not a spouse, not a friend saying, I'll come close. This is God saying, an invitation. If you draw near to me, I will, I will draw near to you. Can you hear his eager voice? He says, I will draw near if you draw near to me. This is the promise of God. You see, if you read, uh, this, this question bothers me because if I'm honest, too often, when the, the invitation of God, draw near to me, I draw near to my disqualifications. I go, I want to, but God, I've really messed up this last week. No, he said, no, no, draw near to me, no, but my disqualifications. Or maybe sometimes if I'm honest, I draw near to my worry. Yeah, God, I want to draw near, but there's so much on my mind, there's so much on my plate that I just need to... I, I can't even think. I need to write down. I need to get a to-do list. No, no, don't draw near to worry. Draw near to me. Sometimes I draw near to my fear. But he's saying, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. You see, in the scripture, if you, if you had noticed, when God first appears to Gideon, Gideon starts saying, God, but, but where have you been? Where's your mighty hand been? For many years, we haven't seen you. And he starts talking about their, 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 their freedom from slavery in Egypt. And he's referring back to the story where Moses, years, the generations before, Moses had led the Israelites out of captivity and was leading them to where? You would love to say the promised land, and you're half right. But actually, initially, God spoke to Moses and said this, Moses, take this word to Pharaoh. Let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. God said this, let my people go so they may worship me in the desert. Why? Their destination was the promised land. But God said, actually, I want them to know me as the provision before they see me and love me as the provider. I don't want their circumstances to define their worship. I want them to love me for me. So much so that actually in that desert place, the, the, you know, the Israelites, they're terrible. If you follow their narrative, they get set free of Egypt and they go, yay, God is great. 
Then they get to the Red Sea and they go, oh, we're going to get killed here. Why did you bring us here? So God opens the Red Sea and they go, yay, God is great, tambourine and all. And then three days later, they go, oh, where's the food? So God says, manna, yeah. And then the manna is too much. It just goes on and on and on, all the way up to the Mount Sinai where they make a golden calf. And they actually say, let me tell you, they start worshiping a golden calf. Here's the thing. The Israelites were aware of God's presence. They saw the cloud. They saw the fire. They knew God was with them. But only one man drew near. Psalms tells us, says this, the Israelites knew my works. Moses knew my my ways. Only one man walked up the mountain. The whole rest of them stood at a distance while God, God was saying, draw near. Only one man had the courage to go up. He went up Sinai. And in this moment, God said, actually, Moses, I'm done with your people. You just have the promised land. You guys can go in, but I'm not coming with you. And Moses, on behalf of the people, said, no, 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 no. God, if you don't go with us, don't take us up from here. Where was here? The desert. Moses was saying, actually, if you, I don't want your things if I don't have you. I don't, I don't want the breakthrough if I cannot have you. I, don't, I want you, Jesus. And here's the understanding for you and I today. I believe that people who get this, who, who don't stop at just being aware, but actually draw near, those are the people who will see mountains moved. And will also be people who will be able to stand when the mountains shout back and don't move. In either way, we'll be people of faith because we know we have him. The provider and the provision. The supplier and the sacrifice. This is who the one we're coming to. So much so that actually the real here of the story is not Gideon. It's not you and I. Flick a few pages across to your right. You'll find a man named Jesus Christ. And this man named Jesus Christ, on his way to the cross, he came with a mission from God. The Father had spoken and said, Jesus, you're going to go and die for the people. Jesus came to die for you and I. And on his way to the cross, as the, one, as the crowd who a week before had said, Yay, blessed is he who comes in the name Lord. The very next week said, Boo, crucify him. And the voice of the enemy started to speak. And the voice of the enemy saying, Who are you to carry the weight of sin of the people? But Jesus, in that moment, didn't, bow to, didn't sink to level of circumstance. He found his father's voice. It's not my will, but yours be done. And on the cross, when everything in the circumstance, they said, Save yourself, Jesus. Save yourself. Call the angels down and rescue yourself. He could have done it, but he didn't go to his own ability in that moment. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. But then came this moment where at the last moment, as the sky grew dark and as Jesus gave out his breath, he cried out this phrase. He said, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment where Jesus, the Father and the Son, who were one, who had never been a moment apart, the Son and the Father chose separation to open the way for you and I, rebels, who have never known union with God, to have the opportunity to draw near to him. Because Jesus chose separation, you and I have an invitation to draw near to God. And he will draw near to us. I want to pray for you and I this evening. If you can stand to your feet, if that's all right. Two minutes and we're done. If you can close your eyes. In this moment, before we rush off into the week. Maybe you've got mountains in the back of your mind, the mind of, I'm going back to a situation at home that I really don't want to face. Maybe there's a mountain of something of, of work tomorrow, of your boss, of your salary, of, of where the next month is going to come from, where that addiction that has just been 
barking out your name for the, and you just, I, I can't go back to that. There's a mountain lodge. In this moment, I want to invite you to find his voice. And his voice does not yell over you disqualified. Does not just yell over you defected. Does not yell over you broken. It's his son, daughter, mighty warrior, man, woman of valor. In this moment, find his voice, hear his voice. Secondly, can I invite us in this moment, lose the excuse. Another fancy word for lose the excuse is repent. Let go. Stop leading with that excuse and take hold and say, Jesus, I know I am, but you are. I'm fixing my focus right now, in this moment. And finally, just be aware and can we draw near to his presence? Draw near in this moment. Don't need a band. Don't need hype. He says, draw near to me, I will. I will. God, I thank you in this moment. You are reminding us, you're giving us a playbook of where to run when the enemy starts to shout. Thank you, God. We find your voice. We lose excuse. We keep your presence. And Jesus, I thank you. Our power does not come from our might, our strength, but by your spirit. Your blood that speaks a better word gives us access so that we, not in our inability, but we point to you and you say, who are you, a great mountain? You shall become a plain, a molehill before our God. This is our playbook. This is our game plan. It's in you, Jesus Christ.